Well, this circuit acceptance is a big question for me. I mean, we both know how well like the A-list program performs for AMC and that it's a, an important part of AMC's offering. Same for, you know, a circuit like Cinemark, their membership program is a big deal for them. So, you know, are are they willing to play along with this new version of MoviePass? Like you said, there's a potential to cannibalize these other services. So from my perspective, I don't see why AMC or Cinemark would say yes to this. I, I don't see how it makes sense for them. This is the Box Office Podcast. I am Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the only publication in North America exclusively dedicated to covering theatrical exhibition. Joined once again by Russ Fisher, the editorial director at Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content for movie theaters. Today, we've got a packed episode going over news on the domestic market, a global update on reopenings and the box office performance in Europe over 2021, and finally closing up the episode with a look at this upcoming weekend at the box office. Before we get started, Russ, how was the weekend? Did you get to watch anything? What's uh, what's it been like over there? We have a child, so we didn't go to the movies. Unfortunately, our plans to to have our child stay with with his grandparents changed last minute. So instead, I watched all of the Jack Reacher series on Amazon. All of it. All of it, which I didn't plan to do. I was like, oh, I'll put on an episode and see what I think. And it's fine. I don't love it. But I've read all of those, all the Jack Reacher books and the book that this is based on. I've read like four times. So I've been doing a big like home improvement project in my basement which means a lot of painting and sanding, which means that I can, because I know the story this is based on, I just set the iPad up and I'm almost listening to it like a podcast while I was doing all of this other stuff. Oh yeah. And then when I, when it's like, oh, a fight scene is happening, I watch that. I like the, I like the Chris McQuarrie movie with Tom Cruise more because Tom Cruise is a movie star and he's very good at that, but this isn't bad. I enjoyed it. Obviously I watched eight hours of it and, uh, <laughs> You know, the fights, the fight scenes are really good. And uh, if you care about this sort of thing, it's very faithful to the book, which, you know, for a lot of people, especially with this series, means something. There's a comfort to that TV on the background thing. Yeah. You know, when yeah, I used to go to laundromats here in, in New York, when I first moved, there's just a TV back there and you just it, it's in the background. There's a pleasure to it. But there's also something to be said for that sort of appointment viewing. You sit down, you pay attention and uh, and see what's going on. Some good news to start off the week here, Russ. Our colleagues in Canada are going to be seeing Ontario and Quebec finally, finally start resuming the cinema reopening process. By this weekend, I think we'll be able to see a healthy screen count in the Canadian market once again. It was a delayed closure uh, for those two provinces among the main provinces in terms of market share in the Canadian market uh, for our colleagues up north. Yeah, it's it's nice to see that that is changing, that they can open again. It's a shame they missed out on uh, the first weekend of Jackass. But, you know, it's a it's a shame they missed out on a lot of things. So I'm happy to see that, that they're opening again. And I don't know, at this point, it seems absurd to talk about going back to normal because I don't even know what that means anymore. <laughs> but, you know, it's a it's a positive step. And talking about comebacks, we've got, uh, let's say, call it a little bit unexpected. I think all of us thought we hadn't heard the last of MoviePass when it ran out of money a couple of years back. MoviePass is back, Russ, with its original co-founder, Stacy Spikes, back as CEO. Stacy Spikes, it started the company in the early 2010s, 
had run MoviePass under a variety of different business models, never very cheaply priced. You had, I think, a price range around $30 plus. They had a pilot program with AMC in the mid-2010s. Lo and behold, late 2010s come around, a big tech company comes in, slashes the price to get a critical mass, and uh, yeah, runs out of money, and um, the rest is history. That was such, such a weird phenomenon. From your perspective in LA, how did this basically come about? Obviously, the way we're looking at things here at Box Office Pro, we knew what subscriptions were. We knew what the model was. We were familiar with MoviePass. But I think film culture in general really wasn't aware of this company or the concept of subscription until that price slashing came in the late 2010s. Yeah, maybe so. I, you know, through one company that I worked for when this uh, service launched with that deal with AMC or maybe not when it launched, but when that deal with AMC happened, I actually was I think I was given a comp subscription back then, but I lived in an area where there were virtually no AMC theaters. It was everything was regal. So I was aware of MoviePass going way back because of that. And I had never really had an opportunity to use it because of where I lived. So when I moved to LA in 2013, in, and I think that was even before the price drop. It was well um, before, yeah. I mean, 2013, yeah. it was even before the pilot program that we'd mentioned. It, it had come out. It had been trying to gain some traction around that 2013 area. I think it was around 2015, 2016, when AMC piloted a MoviePass subscription for its own circuit in Boston and Denver, if I'm not mistaken. But So that's yeah. probably even an earlier iteration of uh, Stacey Spikes rolling out the concept. I was in Atlanta when I was given a subscription to it, probably in like 2010 or 2011, mm -hmm. maybe. And and yeah, I couldn't use it. So anyway, when I moved to L.A., at a certain point, Pacific theaters took it um, and then even smaller theaters like the New Beverly would accept it. Mm -hmm. um, and so in L.A., it was a, it was just kind of assumed that you had MoviePass because it was by far the most economical option. And I, I mean, from my perspective, I always wondered how it possibly worked for theaters because you know, going to the movies in LA, it's like, well, I can I can see something once a day. There's no way this makes financial sense. Obviously, the idea is that you get people to buy into it and then they don't use it that much and they forget about it and the recurring subscription fee, you know, starts to pay for everything else. But in practice, clearly it never worked that way. You know, for me and my friends, it was great. We used it a lot. Everybody that I knew who was a hardcore movie nerd who was which is most of my friends in L.A. Uh, pretty much had it and used it regularly, but nobody was surprised when it died because it was like, well, clearly this can't be sustainable. Yeah, it seemed like too good to be true for a while, especially under that business model, which we, we have to clarify for our listeners. Subscription has been around for decades uh, for cinemas. It's very popular outside of the United States. What MoviePass did was come in with a third party brand agnostic, basically ultra pass that you could go to any cinema which is just so hard to pull off it helped introduce the concept it helped uh, open up the conversation about pricing here in the us as you mentioned russ it became more accessible to go to more movies i think that lesson from the initial movie pass experiment clearly opened the door for circuits in the us to try this on their own and own that conversation and own that relationship with their consumer tied to the loyalty programs that many of them have. My big question in this return is just how much a program like this that is brand agnostic is going to cannibalize existing subscription programs from other major circuits. I I'm not too sure how that's going to shake out. I know there's been other attempts 
in bringing out third-party subscription uh, from another brand agnostic company. We saw it from Cinemia. That didn't really work out. That was parallel to MoviePass. We saw a program that really never got off the ground called Infinity from a company called Influx that provides technology solutions for movie theaters. That also had a really hard time taking off in this sort of general universal subscription program. The only thing we know before the press conference on February 10th is that this will not be priced at $9.99 per month. This won't <laughs> have that, you know, highway robbery aspect to it. Uh, I'm just not sure if consumers are going to be willing to pay a lot more than $20, $25 uh, for one of these passes and how they're going to get around having circuits accept them. Well, this circuit acceptance is a big question for me. I mean, we both know how well like the A-list program performs for AMC and that it's a, an important part of AMC's offering. Same for, you know, a circuit like Cinemark, their membership program is a big deal for them. So, you know, are are they willing to play along with this new version of MoviePass? Like you said, there's a potential to cannibalize these other services. From my perspective, I don't see why AMC or Cinemark would say yes to this. I, right. I don't see how it makes sense for them. And they've, they've, so MoviePass has gone through these workarounds before with the debit card system that they introduced uh, in the mid-2010s. Um, that was, I think, the general sort of movie pass we all grew familiar with when it broke through on a popular culture level. Uh, but even that system was imperfect. It took so much work to get consumers back on track that subscription was a dependable thing, that it was something that could be priced accordingly and competitively and sustainably. So many questions. We're going to find out more this Thursday, and you can read our report on boxofficepro.com on the return of MoviePass. But let's move forward with uh, more positive news here in Texas, where I know you spent a good amount of time in the past. Russ, uh, Houston's historic River Oaks Theater, formerly a landmark location, is now going to be reopened under Star Cinema Grill, a Houston area dine-in chain. If you're following this business, you might remember Star Cinema Grill was acquired right at the start of the 20. 20 outbreak of COVID-19 by CMX Cinemas. That acquisition fell through in 2020 as this crisis got a little bit deeper. Star Cinema Grill has bounced back. It's taken over more leases and it, now it's going to be taking over one of the most iconic cinemas in Houston. And along the same lines, the Alamo Draft House, also originally based in Texas, based out of Austin, has been growing significantly over the past few years, but like everyone else, experienced uh, their own setbacks during the pandemic. But Alamo Draft House is continuing to expand in 2022 with seven new locations and three new cities. Uh, we've got a Staten Island location scheduled for spring 22. And then uh, in the fall, we've got Chicago, Arlington, Virginia, St. Louis. Uh, there's a new Colorado location in Glendale scheduled for the end of 23, uh, Grand Prairie, Texas in 24, and Birmingham, Alabama in 24 as well. So quite a bit going forward with the Alamo, which you know, I, I think, Daniel, I'm curious from your perspective, but for me, you know, we've seen as the Alamo has expanded, we've also seen that some of the signature aspects of the Alamo chain have changed and softened, which I think is an inevitable aspect of expansion for something that began as very much a community business, a very local business. And now they have gone more and more wide over the years. And it's it seemed inevitable that some of the things that made Alamo unique would be either adopted by other people or would have to be softened. So 
I don't have any personal experience with this, but I've, you know, as people have gone back to Alamo locations in other cities, you're hearing that like some of the very strict, no texting, no talking policy seems to be softening a little bit. You know, is that the sort of thing that uh, was just bound to happen with an expansion like this? That's such a good question, Russ. Uh, I am going to give it a, a COVID rain check uh, on, on basically <laughs> what's going on in this expansion, because it's really difficult to run a community theater with programming in off-peak periods, right? On Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, when you build your own culture, you build your own audience. It's really hard to institute that coming out of the pandemic. Right now, we're in a period of just getting back on our feet. So I think if there is a situation right now where Alamo is probably resembling a bigger circuit a little bit more, I would say it's for that reason. I think the core identity of Alamo Drafthouse is still there. It's still retained. It's still present. But those aspects that brought a lot of us to the Alamo Drafthouse brand are a little bit dormant because that film culture, let's face it, is dormant as well. That film culture is not as prevalent as it used to be right before the pandemic. So that's why I think this is a situation where I wouldn't even call it a growing pain. I think it's a recovery pain from the COVID-19 pandemic in trying to zero in on that community cinema aspect that Alamo Drafthouse has been able to do so well. The other part of that announcement is that Alamo is also doing a premium large format uh, expansion uh, called The Big Show with uh, extra large curved screens and Dolby Atmos sound, which I think is a great thing for the chain because they haven't really had that. You know, it's it's yeah. always been one thing the Drafthouse has done consistently since the beginning is position itself as a home for cinemaphile friendly presentation, high quality picture and sound, but they've never had a premium large format offering of their own. And so this is a pretty cool addition to their portfolio. And this is where I do think Alamo Drafthouse is emulating the behavior of larger national circuits in rolling out their own exhibitor branded premium large format covering this industry. The rise of PLF has been one of the major trends in the last three, four years in exhibition. And it's really interesting to see how now that is breaking through beyond the top five chains into other players in the market rolling out their own concepts. Well, and what's great is that you look at what I end up wondering is if the Alamo can kind of nudge this into a space that is vacated by IMAX in a lot of cities, you know, mm -hmm. and it's way too early to see what happens here, obviously. But having seen the Alamo position itself as a destination for people who care about picture and sound. There are a lot of cities that no longer have a true IMAX format. I don't think this is going to be IMAX, but I'm curious to see how the Alamo pushes forward to try to capture some of that audience that's looking for that sort of experience. And we'll be following these trends and updates on the market on our website, boxofficepro.com and through our magazine, Box Office Pro, which you can subscribe to through our website. Another big story that we are keeping our eye on is the latest updates on the European movie-going recovery. Russ, we finally got the report from Unique, the counterpart to NATO in the European market, on the total box office figures for 2021. Unfortunately, still down, of course, when we compare to those 2019 levels, but we do see a bit of progress when we compare it to 2020. A 57% slide in 2021 compared to 19, but a 42% increase compared to 2020. We had uh, some updates from the top five European markets. If you could go over uh, some of those stats that, that we have here in front of us. 
Yeah, absolutely. So most of these stats echo those general numbers. You've got France, which is down 56% compared to 2019, but up 47% compared to 2020. Germany, similar figures, 62% against 19, 25% up against 20. Russia is really interesting, down 25% from 2019, up 70%, 70% from 2020. And uh, I'm curious, Daniel, uh, after we go through these figures to circle with you and see what you think explains that. Spain basically echoes France almost exactly. But then there's Italy down 73% against 2019 and down 7% against 2020. So uh, Italy and Russia are sort of the the opposite ends of the spectrum. So uh, what do you take away from those particular points of data? It's, it's an interesting way to look at how these top markets in Europe are faring against that average, right? And as you mentioned, you have three core markets there, really setting the pace where everybody else is. Russia, much quicker to, to be ahead in terms of recovery. Italy, very, very alarming numbers, among the worst in Europe when we look at that uh, Italian recovery. Yes, I think factors like operational restrictions and regional closures do play into these figures to an extent. But another thing we also have to look at is the role of local films from those individual countries, how that is doing in bringing people back to cinemas. We saw France and Spain having really successful box office hits from their own country come out and level things out. Russia, similarly, over-indexing with these local movies. Italy still lagging behind in terms of uh, these local productions connecting with the audiences there. It's a little bit of a nuance that we have to factor in in this specific global recovery in a way that doesn't factor in in other regions. Let's say for Latin America, for example, where national films do well in, in a much more limited way than they do in some of these top European markets. And while we don't have Chinese numbers exactly, that point about domestically produced titles performing extremely well uh, is being seen in China, where a sequel, The Battle at Lake Shenzhen 2, is continuing a hot streak at the box office there. And now that, of course, doesn't surprise anybody. Chinese films doing well in China is pretty much how the Chinese box office works. And in fact, over the past couple of years, we've seen Chinese blockbusters be some of the biggest movies in the world. What I read into this is that the first film, which was released during the pandemic and became a massive hit in that market, has now been followed up by a sequel that's looking to have similar traction at the box office with those audiences. We're seeing the Chinese market, despite all of these disruptions, continue staying the course with big movies that attract big audiences. I can only see this positively, Russ, to be completely honest. It's another way of seeing the power of theatrical in coming back from the pandemic. And with that in mind, let's look at the new releases coming this week. We have two big studio titles and then kind of an interesting event programming. We have Death on the Nile, the long-awaited uh, Kenneth Branagh sequel to Murder on the Orient Express, which, as we've previously mentioned in other episodes, was uh, significantly delayed due to COVID-19. And then we have Marry Me, the uh, J-Lo and Owen Wilson rom-com that uh, seems primed for Valentine's Day opening. We also have Blacklight, the Liam Neeson action movie coming this week, which has previously discussed as classic Valentine's weekend uh, counter-programming. So you've got Marry Me on one hand and you've got Blacklight on the other hand. And then right in the middle, you've got the glamour of Death on the Nile. But then there's uh, this Kanye West Netflix documentary called Genius. Spelled J E E N dash. Oh, now I get it. ah. See, when I saw it written down, yeah, you're spelling it out. I'm sorry I interrupted you, but yeah, I had no idea how to. (laughs) Now it's genius. Okay. 
Okay, yeah. yeah. Okay, that's yeah. Kanye for you. Okay. That's Kanye for you. So that, that plays one night only this Thursday, February 10th. And, uh, you know, Kanye being the superstar that he is, I'm curious to see what sort of draw exists there. Like, does Kanye's larger fan base uh, know that this is happening? Uh, do they care because it's a, a Netflix thing? Or are they just going to watch it at home? Yeah, as you mentioned, Russ, it's a one night only release. It's an event cinema release. It's going through iconic events, uh, an upstart in this uh, very competitive niche of event cinema in the United States. They've done deals with Netflix in the past. You may remember a couple of months ago, they made a deal to bring The Mitchells versus The Machines, another Netflix title, to cinemas through a similar event cinema engagement. So I'm not sure how this is going to perform in the culture at large, but it is an interesting development to see Netflix partnering with event cinema companies to eventize some of the films that maybe they're not giving uh, a short theatrical window that we've seen in the past. Yeah, and I expect to see more of that. And you even see, you know, major circuits uh, partnering with Netflix. Uh, Cinemark shows February is Black History Month. Uh, I've seen that Cinemark has titles like Spike Lee's To Five Bloods playing is showing uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Those are each showing as single presentation event cinema event cinema programming as well. But it's the sort of thing that isn't promoted very heavily. And I'm curious to see how that changes or indeed if it changes. It's going to be, I think, an interesting evolution as as we continue to track how these release windows happen, how they don't happen. Maybe going through event cinema and another company, a third party company like Iconic Events is an easier way for a circuit to play a Netflix title without having to go into some sort of negotiation with the streamer. Uh, another big thing that we'll be tracking in the coming weeks and months. And as you mentioned, Russ, it's going to be a, a nice, diverse weekend at the movies with a number of different titles. Looking at these holdovers, it was a nice little bit of momentum from Jackass Forever, opening in first place last weekend with 23.5 million. Two thirds of that audience, unsurprisingly, being male. But surprisingly, Russ, something I didn't expect, we're both over 35 years old. We both watched Jackass on TV. We've grown up uh, around this IP for a while. Only 25% of that opening weekend audience was above the age of 35. This continues to be a draw for younger audiences, 18 to 34 year olds representing two thirds of that opening weekend uh, audience for Jackass. And maybe you can help me out figuring this part a little bit from these uh, demo numbers that we got from Paramount. Los Angeles massively over-indexing an opening weekend here. Nine out of the top 10 locations in the United States coming from LA and 27 out of the country's top 40 grocers for this title in the Los Angeles area. What's going on over there in the West Coast? Are you guys just that into Johnny Knoxville? I mean, there is certainly a big fandom for Jackass. I don't know. Did Paramount critics pay for screenings? Is that what happened? <laughs> I I genuinely don't know. I mean, it doesn't surprise me. I feel like, you know, I'm not in L.A. anymore, but I do feel like this weekend I was just seeing things where all of my friends were going to see Jackass. Some of them were going to see it multiple times. Um, it is a popular uh, series. There's no question. I think the what's more interesting to me, perhaps, is the those numbers, the demo breakdown, really, with the movie playing well to younger audiences, which honestly, you know, in an era of 
you know, TikTok and where you've got a continued, there, there's just always a popularity of these sort of short form comedy videos, especially you have a physical aspect. You've got somebody getting hit in the nuts or in the face. It's like whatever era you're in, if you're 20, that's still funny. You still like watching that clearly. And it, I guess what's more interesting to me is that uh, it just doesn't matter really who's doing it. You put that on the big screen in the case of Jackass, it doesn't matter that these guys are 50, you know, people are still going to show up and watch it. And, uh, maybe it's even more intriguing because the Jackass crew is all older at this point. Um, but it's, it's the, the, sh the, the pure breakdown of the, uh, demographics doesn't entirely surprise me there. And the word of mouth on this one has been quite positive. I wouldn't be surprised if it's able to retain a lot of that momentum heading into its second weekend. Talking about that word of mouth, another title I've been hearing a lot about, opening to $10 million in second place last weekend, Moonfall from Lionsgate. The PLF numbers for this, Russ, were fantastic. A third of its opening weekend gross came from PLF. 14% of its overall gross actually came from IMAX alone. Fantastic numbers in premium format for this title, even though that opening weekend number, it's not the same as we've seen for other big disaster movies. No, it's not. I mean, the PLF number makes total sense to me. You're going to go see a Roland Emmerich movie where things blow up. You're going to go on the biggest screen that you can. That's of course you're going to do that. Um, so it's it's interesting to see that 10 million opening is, like you said, is not what we would have expected. But maybe that's just reflective of a general change in attitudes and interests overall. I mean, it's like there's something comforting at this point about a disaster movie because it's so familiar. <laughs> it's like, but, it, you know, it's a far cry from the days of, you know, the times of like Independence Day when a movie like that promised a spectacle that you couldn't see anywhere else. You know, not only have we've seen that spectacle on television and other places it's just not as remarkable anymore and so you're you're left falling back on you know things like character and structure which let's just be honest is not exactly what roland emmerich is known for so it's interesting to see how things change but i don't know how you juice up that that subgenre anymore without fundamentally changing it into something else an interesting bit about this movie is that three quarters of its opening weekend audience was actually over the age of 25. This might be a situation where just folks around our age find these movies a lot more interesting, a lot more appealing because they remind us of these uh, 1990s disaster movies. You mentioned Independence Day. I have a soft spot for Dante's Peak. Remember that one with the <laughs> volcano and James Bond? Uh, yes. He was in there. Yeah, yeah, those yeah. remind me of, uh, I, I do have this sort of nostalgic relationship with a disaster movie. I'm not sure if it's the same case for a generation that's younger, that grew up after 9-11, where images of big destruction uh, are, are very, very different, have a very different yeah. meaning to a generation that grew up with terrorism, that grew up with very difficult, even nat natural disasters, you know? Yeah. So it's... I don't know if it's that may be reading too much into it, but I believe, I suspect at least, that our connection to these disaster films is probably a little bit different than those that are younger than us. Yeah, almost certainly. And I mean, the other point that I think is is pretty obvious but worth making is that a lot of the visual spectacle that was provided by disaster movies to the 90s and early 2000s is now 
provided by Marvel movies and right. other films of similar type. You know, it's like that's the thing is that the Marvel movies did not exist <laughs> prior to 2000. So you've got the 90s. You wanted to see stuff blow up in a big way. You went to see Independence Day or whatever. Um, now there's an entirely different crop of movies that offers that same sort of weird visual pleasure. And you don't have to go to the disaster movie anymore. And like you say, I think that dovetails with a different generational experience with the very concept of disaster. So yeah, it's a shift. And talking about generational shifts, and you're going to thank me for this transition. That was a good transition. Once I bring up the title, the worst person in the world from neon that opened in limited release last weekend and actually did quite well. Russ, this is one of my favorite movies that I've seen over the last two years absolutely loved it. I got to interview the director, Joachim Trier, for our magazine. You can find that on boxofficepro.com. This is a movie about early adulthood, about generational differences in adulthood. I absolutely adored this title. It opened in four locations over the weekend and actually did quite well. Yeah, you know, we're looking at 135K from four screens, which, you know, seems like a relatively small amount when we're talking about, you know, the 23 and a half million that Jackass Forever took. But that was four screens. That makes for a $33,000 per screen average, wow. which is exceptional. Yeah. That is an exceptional PSA. It's the highest PSA for any movie of 2022, and it's the third highest of any movie of 2021 behind Licorice Pizza and Spider Man No Way Home, where Licorice Licorice Pizza was similarly, you know, a, a director oriented movie, a movie aimed at the same audience that is probably going to go see the worst person in the world. So seeing that comparative performance there is really intriguing. Uh, it's also the highest PSA for any foreign language movie of 2022, 2021, 2020. Um, and you got to go back to 2019 for to give it any real comparison when it would place third behind the PSAs of Parasite. No surprise and Portrait of a Lady on Fire. So those All are the these titles. titles, by the way, distributed by Neon. Yes. Which has had a fantastic run with foreign language cinema, opening it small, getting higher and higher expansions. Uh, great news for a title that really deserved this, uh, this embrace from audiences. Neon is becoming, uh, I mean, it started as an interesting distributor and it's becoming more and more so because, yeah, like you say, they've clearly proven that they understand how to connect movies and audiences, which is really what a distributor has to do, especially now. And, you know, you you see a, a distrib like A24 getting all of this kind of attention among certain circles. But then you've got Neon out here quietly and very professionally doing the work and getting audiences to see these movies that now are not easy sells and are not guaranteed successes. And the worst person in the world is going to be expanding to additional cities this weekend. It's going to have approximately 50 runs uh, up, obviously, from the four of its opening weekend with additional expansions across the United States scheduled for February 18th and 25th. A nice start to the year for the ailing art house market, which hasn't seen too many uh, titles really show up in 2022 to reignite that box office. Hopefully this can start a bit of good momentum heading into the Academy Awards. I was just going to say, by the time this episode is live, the Academy Award nominations will have been revealed. It's almost certain that the worst person in the world will end up in that nomination slate somewhere. Uh, and I'm very curious to see what else is nominated. You know, we can 
pretty safely expect titles like Belfast to show up. Tick, Tick, Boom, which is a Netflix title. So that means, you know, that is probably going to end up in more cinemas somehow. Yeah, the, the art house box office can always be helped by Oscar nominations. So, you know, we'll see who gets nominated and what gets nominated when those are released tomorrow. And obviously next week uh, we can discuss in further detail. Well, thank you, Russ. And that wraps up our analysis for this week's edition of the Box Office Podcast. On behalf of my co-host, Russ Fisher, I am Daniel Luria. And thank you again for listening. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Box Office Pro in collaboration with Box Office Studios, the Box Office Company, and Record Edit Podcast. Tune in next Thursday for the next episode.